Hi, everybody, and welcome to Adventures in Artslandia. I'm on the road today. I'm Susanna Mars, and I want to thank Julie Cortez and Josh Horvath for paving the way for me to be able to do a remote interview with Lauren Modica and Damaso Rodriguez. Damaso is the director of Romeo and Juliet, which has its first preview at Oregon Shakespeare Festival on June 5th, and it opens on June 15th, and Lauren is in the show. I am. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks, yes. for, thanks so for coming excited. to see us. Oh my gosh, yeah. it's my pleasure. I was thinking about this uh, recently that actors and directors and people who are regional theater artists are gypsies, mm-hmm. you know? That term has been used often. And then recently, last week, I read that the term gypsy in gypsy robe on Broadway is going to be retired because it has been seen as a, a racial slur. And I was so fascinated by that. And it really uh, was kind of the tip of the iceberg. I know we mm-hmm. wanted to talk about equity, diversity, and inclusion about being sensitive to how other people feel about what they're called. Any thoughts? I mean, that's kind of a, uh, an interesting view of what's happening right now about opening our eyes about how people feel about certain terms. I think I think the number one thing, because it's definitely something that, that is forefront on my mind all the time, just being a very diverse physically and, and uh, as far as my racial background goes as well, actor. But especially down here at OSF, it's, it's really a core principle value. And so for me personally, I always look at it as it, it's not costing me anything to be sensitive to someone else. So as far as terms go, as far as language goes, it's so easy for me to work hard on not using it or not um, bringing it into my vernacular or the dialogue in the room because it doesn't cost me anything to not use the term gypsy. Mm -hmm. But to someone else, it's huge Mm -hmm. and it colors their their feelings, their self-esteem, how they move through the world. Mm. So I kind of just fall back on the idea of it literally costs most people nothing to be sensitive and thoughtful about the language that they use. And if someone really feels that it's detrimental to who they are as a human being to not be able to use that term, Mm -hmm. then that's a sign that they really maybe need to do some equity and diversity and inclusion work <laughs> on themselves. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, I, I, I feel the same way. I think also it's, you know, it, it, it's a word that, you know, it's funny when you brought it up, I said, oh, I didn't know we were going here. And I wonder, I wonder if Suzanne is aware of this recent <laughs> uh, um, change that's going on in New York about this tradition. And I think one of the, the, the there's a, there's a, I can understand an impulse to kind of, resist it and make it individual and personal well that's not what that that that's not being used in a negative context mm-hmm. etc but the truth is you know i think a a, a theater a theater community it, one of the things we do is model society we, mm-hmm. we put it on stage right. mm-hmm. and and our job is to reflect the world good and bad but i think in the way we operate we we operate in this kind of model ideal utopian way when we're collaborating together and so i think it's our responsibility to uh, help uh, further that conversation and kind of lead our community along the way. Mm-hmm. So I think of, you know, I personally do not, did not know the history of of the racism rogue. in that word okay. and the and the, and, and the impact that has. Um, and 
uh, immediately my you know my mind goes oh what about the musical gypsy and what you know right um, and uh, let alone the colloquialism etc. But that that impulse to to resist changing tradition or, or like letting the world uh, kind of go by in, in in a way that's beyond your control I can understand how that's uncomfortable mm-hmm. right but but you do just have to let it go like why why be unaware of the pain you're causing others right right, mm-hmm. right. it's that it's that idea of i always look at it as like the the campsite rule mm-hmm. you know leave it better than you found it Ooh, i like that and and i apply that to a lot of things in my life um but it it's so what Damaso was mentioning the resistance that's been something that's been so interesting to come up against it's is almost this ownership that people feel and and this idea of I always wonder why it's why it's suddenly so important mm. because if these were people who are like I've been using this word 5 to 7 times daily for my entire <laughs> life my great grandfather was using it it is a part of my heritage then I'm like okay well I can understand how that's hard to let go but if it's something that you toss off casually and suddenly you're defending your right to continue harming people. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is that's something that I can't wrap my head around. Mm-hmm. And like Damaso said, I think that theater so long for so long has reflected back a certain view of the world. And with equity and diversity and inclusion coming to the forefront, we are reflecting back a world that looks just like ours. But because stages for so long maybe haven't been as diverse there's this whole it's it's like through the looking glass it's you know we're seeing what reality looks like but because we haven't seen it in that uh format for so long it's it's a little warped for people Hmm. and i think language goes right along with that well that makes for a good segue actually to romeo and juliet a play that is very old, and um, you are setting it in the Italian Renaissance, if I'm not mistaken. And so how are you bringing that world into the contemporary world? How are they merging? Yeah, well, the the, the key merger happens uh, in the people making the work mm-hmm. and the audience, right? So what we're doing is simply referencing the given circumstances of the play. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're, we're setting it in Verona, we're setting it in Italy, we're setting it hundreds of years ago. Um, and in doing that, uh, it, it kind of forces us to, I think, examine our history, really, as a, as a you know, Western culture at the very least, right? Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it's, it's still us doing the play, right? So we've assembled, you know, as is, as is now standard at OSF, uh, just a really diverse company. Um, we want to reflect the, the modern world, right, in our cast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we got a diverse t- design team as well, so we bring all that perspective to it. But yeah, we're we're saying Juliet is a a thirteen year old girl, and she is being uh, sort of controlled and manipulated, like uh, almost like property, the property mm-hmm. of the the male dominated society. And this is how the world was, and and to a certain extent still is in mm-hmm. uh, in in certain places in the world, in certain. Uh, elements of society, you know, mm-hmm. maybe it's more invisible from time to time, right? And so, how, what a fascinating uh, thing to investigate in uh, this 21st century moment. And so, I guess the approach was not, not, you know, I had an impulse at the beginning of the process uh, to uh, set it in a contemporary 
location or kind of place a modern given circumstances on it and and, and sort of justify the divide between Montague and Capulet. Even though Shakespeare doesn't do it, there's no indication of why uh, these two uh, families uh, hate each other. You know, that's that's our way into it, mm-hmm. and uh, we I think it's been really rewarding. We've been we're about eight weeks into this re- this rehearsal process, and certainly it feels fresh and challenging and uh, and modern mm-hmm. uh, as we work on it. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. I think the word that keeps coming to mind and and it's such such an often used word but it's it's just sort of epic in its scale mm-hmm. this production you're you're just sort of engulfed by music by the costumes by the lighting choices by the set and by the performances and it's it's really interesting because so we had so many fascinating discussions during table work and we were we were talking about like Damaso said how it's this it's this foreign idea to so many of us that young women would still be property and sort of presented as such. And this is who you're going to marry. This is what the rest of your life is going to look like. You're doing this for the family bloodline. No other reason. And that we in today's society are like, oh, no, that could never happen. And then you realize that it does happen in so many informal ways. Mm-hmm. The gentle nudges that you get, the idea of like, this per- no, this person, this path is mm-hmm. is right for you. Even women now yes. who are working in corporate in the corporate mm-hmm. world, and and certainly we're seeing this in all areas where men are treating women as right. I- properties of idea. Their yes. ideas are their property, but it's so it's it's pretty pervasive. It's it's so embedded in our worldwide culture, mm-hmm. and it's become so commonplace that it takes, I think diving deep into our history to realize that it's still alive and well unfortunately mm-hmm. right it's 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 secretive it's yeah. it's subversive how all of a sudden you think oh my goodness i'm actually my responses are being uh tempered by my who i'm in the presence of right what is that i right. can't even believe i'm doing it and yeah so we have all these these assumptions in the world of the play that are mm-hmm. embedded in the text, and and just really clear. But there's a really toxic masculine culture <laughs> yeah. um, in this Verona summer, uh, and uh, and then you have these these two teenagers who, uh, as they're written, have some of the the greatest language in the play and the greatest language in all of Shakespeare. And Juliet is uh, as smart a character as you mm-hmm. can imagine mm-hmm. um, in the way Shakespeare. You know, the, 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 the words she has in her, you know, in her, in her mouth, in her mind. Mm. And so I think the play elevates the young people in this world and they defy the assumptions of their society. And, you know, it's a tragedy. We know it doesn't end well for them, mm-hmm. uh, but there's something about defiant youth um, that is, I think, really powerful in this play. And then once again, extremely topical right now. We see right. teenagers now driving the conversation uh, about uh, gun violence in, in, in this country. And, and they're eloquent and mature and relentless. Mm-hmm. And it's really exciting. And so it's amazing to see it in this play. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's so true. That's a wonderful point that the young people are elevated as the changers, the game changers. Sadly, that the sacrifice that has to be made for that change right. to occur and I was thinking about this in light of, of teenage suicide 
and how, uh, you know, the conversation about Romeo and Juliet can be uh, pointed toward young people in knowing that those types of sacrifices don't have to be made, that they do have voice, Mm -hmm. how this show might promote that. My hope would be, I, I think it's, it's always said that the next generation is going to be the generation that changes the world, mm-hmm. that, you know, stops the cycle, that that sort of ends whatever strife has been going on. And, and I remember hearing that. But the thing that's, that's so hopeful and that Damaso referenced is that, you know, the, the young adults who are speaking out and speaking up, I really do think that we've reached this this crucial time where because of the rise of technology and social media young people are allowed to express themselves in ways that are undeniable Mm -hmm. you no longer hear as much at least the idea of oh they're just young they're just upset they're just you know having a mood we are now watching again as damaso referenced with juliet people with fully formed ideas and and beautiful, beautiful self-expression and an urgency and a clarity. And they just happen to be 14, 15, 16, 17 years old. Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of it's awe-inspiring, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's 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 this beautiful climax of bravery and freedom and access and knowledge. And they have a history that is so much more violent in so many ways, especially in our country, mm-hmm. than our own. Mm-hmm. And and it's all coming together and being expressed in this incredible way. So I, I agree. I hope that our production doesn't, you know, hopefully does not inspire anyone to tragically um, end their love stories, but rather to heroically amplify their voices. Mm. And and to amplify what love does and inspires in us all. Yeah, and I mean the 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 tragic irony in Romeo and Juliet is that it would be it would be so easy to have avoided mm-hmm. right. the tragedy, right? Um, and I think that lands, I hope, in our production. And we're not we're not. I think it's it's a beautiful and um, passionate production. And there's certainly um, chemistry and romance uh, between Romeo and Juliet, but. Yeah, we're very clear that our, our intentions are revealing these other given circumstances in the play. I mean, Romeo and Juliet are only in the play together for four scenes, mm-hmm. four and a half scenes they share dialogue. Mm-hmm. So really, the world of Romeo and Juliet is, is, uh, all, is, is the characters around Romeo and Juliet and how each interacts with the sort of um, uh, authority figures in their world. Mm-hmm. It, and there's, you know, we know from the opening prologue that they take their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so back to your point about suicide, um, yeah, it's important that we don't um, in any way exalt it or glorify right. the act. Or romanticize. Romanticize yeah. it. At the end of the play, you're meant to feel that this is is essentially this community of uh, failed failed these kids. Right. Um, and, you know, I, there's something that we're working on and sort of paying attention to the gender roles in the play. I think for me, at least, it's revealing... Um, the mothers in the play mm. in an interesting way mm. and that if simply that particular daughter and that particular mother had had a way of communicating with each other mm-hmm. that might have been the key way that this mm-hmm. didn't happen mm-hmm. we often focus on if the Fri- friar lawrence hadn't have done this or mm. if they hadn't you know if if romeo hadn't bumped into tybalt in the street that day and all these uh, these twists of fate mm. that are 
relevant and, and, and really interesting about Romeo and Juliet, but mm-hmm. it's really, wow, there are several moments where if Juliet had felt like she could talk to her mother, this wouldn't have happened. And that's another a result of the uh, male dominance, mm-hmm. how the mother would even feel able to reveal her true feelings to her beloved daughter. That's right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, not not to give too much away about the production, but one of the things that's been so fascinating to watch is that you really do see that. Mm. You see, you know, the, the sort of trio of the nurse, um, you know, Juliet and her mother, mm. and the, you know, the game of telephone that is played, mm. played the discomfort with being alone. They're captive. You know, right. Or the idea of like, I feel this way with you, but I close off with you. Mm. And and that comes through so beautifully and so sort of heartbreakingly. Oh, it, hurt, it hurts right now. Yeah. You know, I have a very close relationship with my mom mm. and I'm so grateful for it, especially as I grow older, because the reference and the guidance and the empathy is all is all there. Mm. Um, and there's none of that discomfort. But to watch, you you do just want to say, like, no, just talk to each other. Just just sit down. Go out for brunch. Like, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So the the power of love, the redemptive power of love, uh, just brings me to a kind of a weird cultural thing that I'm into, which is the royal wedding. Mm -hmm. And uh, Michael B. Curry, the pastor who uh, made a sermon at St. George's Chapel, where... Henry VIII is buried. It's really the the today clash of the titans, you know, American culture, British culture, mm-hmm. Shakespeare land. Did you, either of you guys have any feels about the whole royal wedding thing, or am I just the lone wolf? I could talk for days, Susanna. <laughs> I love that. We will get together when you come back yes. to Portland. <laughs> I only watched the Saturday Night Live uh sketches after the royal wedding so all right well um, okay take this one oh wow i mean there were so many fascinating i was fascinated by this i thought the sermon was beautiful Mm -hmm. i thought it was hilarious watching the royal family in their discomfort or what i perceived as discomfort about this type of of authentic preaching Mm -hmm. in that space the the african-american cellist Mm -hmm. no was he british He's he British. was British, but yeah, yeah black yeah. of cellist. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was just I I know it's kind of People magazine, but by the same token, it is a very visible crossing of of the history. For me, it was I unfortunately was, you know, due to my schedule, wasn't able to watch it live, mm-hmm. and and but catching up on it in the days afterwards, what struck me was how intimate it was, even though it's this public spectacle. And how two people really seem to design the day. Mm. Everything from how um, the Duchess of Sussex, as she is now known, mm-hmm. had the flowers from all the British Commonwealths embroidered on her veil. Oh, it gives me the chills. And so many. I, I read this great point, which is that, you know, she was literally wearing her... It's... It, the fact that she is biracial mm-hmm. and the fact that racism in Britain has been such a intense topic over the years and and how it's it's in some ways it seems so much more progressive uh, their views towards race but in so many other ways especially as you climb through 
um, the class system, it's so, it's so backwards. Mm -hmm. And, and so the presence of both sides of her um, racial background being so, so vibrantly represented at the wedding was such a beautiful, almost quiet protest. And, you know, it, it, it brings, I've been thinking about love so much, especially mm-hmm. with the show, and it brings me such hope to, to have seen such love mm-hmm. on such a global scale. Mm-hmm. And that it was, it was, again, just so intimate. It felt like we were spying. I mm-hmm. remember watching Kate and William, William's wedding, and and feeling the pomp and the circumstance. But this was so elegant and calm and personal. Mm-hmm. And I I think it's I think it's great for the for the royal family to be exposed to that. I think it's great that they they work so hard and they're expected to be so buttoned up, you know, and and to watch that discomfort, I was like, "Let's see more of that." Let's, know, the, you know, and the laughter and the yeah. bubbling—it felt, it felt so vital to me, right. Compared to other, and so real. Yeah, I yeah. loved it, and it actually is a great segue into the fact that you're doing this play in a very large venue, mm-hmm. and it's a very intimate play. Mm-hmm. So, what is it like to scale this show, this beautiful, intimate portrayal of love? And bring it into this giant theater, including the way you have to care for yourself as an actor, uh, body and soul. Yeah, well, I, there there is a I think a responsibility with any production to to scale the performance to the venue that you're in, mm-hmm. right? And so, well, Romeo and Juliet is a combination of intimate two, three, four character scenes, mm-hmm. and then large group uh, gatherings. So we have 21 in our cast, and there are several moments in the play where all 21 are on stage. But then there are maybe more moments where it's just a couple of people, right, in pretty intimate scenes, like you're saying. But thankfully, in the intimate scenes, the scale of the emotions, right, the stakes are so high that I think uh, they they fill right. The, they fill that 1,200-seat uh, venue. But mm-hmm. it does require... Um, an amplification of those stakes and heightened mm-hmm. language, which thank- thankfully we have. Mm-hmm. Um, but I say if I was doing this play in a smaller venue, in a, even a venue half its size, I might not have made certain choices. So we are very much trying to put some ritual and spectacle into this play. Mm-hmm. And in, in essence, the play, the performance of this play itself is a gathering of a community to, to go through the ritual listening of the story of Romeo and Juliet. Mm. And so... Yeah, there's there's um, there's pageantry, um, and, and you know, and one of the things that, that in keeping it in the in the period uh, allows Romeo and Juliet to be the swashbuckling play that it is. There yeah. are uh, three really extraordinary uh, fights mm. in the play, and um, and we 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 are allowed to let them be mm. uh, big and intense, um, and they're extraordinarily uh, choreographed by um, uh, Topo or resident fight director here mm-hmm. um and uh yeah so i yeah i do feel i do feel like we're under the night sky uh in the second act we're in broad daylight in the first act mm-hmm. um right people and far in the balcony yeah. and we've got to we've got to expand that that performance where does sunset fall uh we're timing it right now uh, um, i was curious what's it- interesting is bill Rausch reminded me that our first preview which is june 5th mm-hmm. uh 
the sun will set at a certain point, but it'll actually set later and later until, yes. you know, uh, and, until it turns on the 21st or whatever, oh, right? Yeah. So um, uh, we're, we're betting on the beginning of our second act being quite uh, dusky. Mm. Uh, and then, thankfully, by the time we get late into the play, um, it'll be very dark mm. and moody. Um, <laughs> Emotionally. Yeah. It matches the journey of the play. Wow. Yeah. That's great. How about you as an actor? I mean, I have seen plays at the Muni in St. Louis where it started to rain. I've seen plays in San Diego where when the airplane goes overhead, they've got to freeze. What are the natural consequences of being on stage at the Elizabethan? This is my first show uh, in in the Lizzie, as we call it. Um, <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to it. I've done outdoor Shakespeare before, actually mm-hmm. up in Portland. And that was you know, you do the show. And there's something here so so vital about being outside. Like you you find your body and your voice sort of just change. And we're miked, but you just feel this urge and this pulse to fill the space and to to take in the air. And that's that's wonderful. And it's something that I think every actor should experience Mm. because it really does change how you how you perform in general. Because after that summer where I was touring around the parks with Shakespeare, I was like, oh, this is incredible. You know, you can you can really do things outside, um, however small they might be, that then later inform your, your indoor performances. And it really is using your outdoor voice versus your <laughs> indoor voice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's family. That's yeah. really... Really cool. It sounds like such fun. I've got to come back and see it. Please just do. Seeing show in the Elizabethan is just the living end. I love it. Yeah. Uh, so I have one kind of personal question for you guys. What do you find hopeful in the world right now? Are you going first? No. Don't read into the dramatic pause. Well, I mean, I mean, there's there is as troubling as much of what we read every day in the news is. Um, there's progress. There's progress every day. Um, I have I have kids. They give me a lot of hope. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I I see I see uh, I see the next generation's impulse is is always pretty pure when they mm-hmm. when they start out, mm-hmm. and it's only kind of warped uh, by the world. And so you know, I feel like as a parent, my job is to uh, help my, my kids make the world better as in the way that they live their lives. But even you describing. Uh, the royal wedding. There's, there's, you, you know, Lauren. You said uh, protest, but there's just progress in there too. Yeah. Um, and love and connection driving progress. I mean, that's. I, I like to think how the world basically works uh, over time, despite all these other forces that are uh, in the way of that always. Mm-hmm. But um, I'd like to think progress wins. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely. The thing that gives me most hope is that. I feel like we're really seeing the sprouts and the blooms from seeds that were planted maybe a couple generations ago. I, I look at how certain things that were huge and, and drew drew protest are now just commonplace. And the way that the you know kids or the younger generations are sort of looking back at everyone else and going like, we're fine with this. Mm-hmm. Why don't you, you know... Um, get on board and to see how that's happened throughout history is is very affirming Mm -hmm. and 
the speed at which tragedy seems to come these days is heartbreaking, but the speed at which voices seem to rise in response to that and action seems to be taken is, you know, quenching in a really beautiful way. So I hope that we can lessen the violence and lessen the tragedy, but continue to amplify the voices and the solutions and the acceptance. Yeah, what also comes to mind for me is the bringing to the fore the natural world right. and the appreciation for the beauty of the world, mm-hmm. not in the human, well, of course, including humanity, but the beauty of bees and trees and, you know, going back to the earth, literally, to uh, in, to love it, you know? Right, and it, it makes me think of uh, the horrible wildfire that swept through the gorge after that young man threw fireworks yes. into into it. And the response was not just, please find this person, you know, let's, mm-hmm. let's, but what can we do for the gorge? Mm-hmm. How can we um, bring it back to its glory mm-hmm. and, and support not, it, support it. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was beautiful. Yeah. I think sometimes in turning our, our thoughts away from human solving problems and just to love the natural world it might pave the way for a new perspective mm-hmm. you know it's so fascinating so much fun talking to you both yes, fun talking to you. Yeah, yeah we miss you in portland look forward to your return oh, whenever yes. that is and i want to thank josh horvath and julie cortez for helping me uh, make this work and thanks for carving out time in your busy schedules and uh, Romeo and Juliet is going to open on June 15th, but previews will begin on June 5th at the Elizabethan Theater. And you can look online at osfashland.org and find out everything under the sun, including interviews and all sorts of wonderful things. So don't uh, miss coming to Ashland this year. It's a beautiful place to visit, and you can really enjoy nature and nurture mm-hmm. your brain, too. Mm-hmm. Thanks again for coming and listening to Adventures in Artslandia. See you next time.